All right. I don't want to waste any time tonight because we're going to go for a personal record. We've got some ground to cover tonight. And it's worth pointing out as we get started, you can go ahead and open a Bible up to Genesis chapter 12. If you didn't bring one with you, there should be one sitting in the back of a pew nearby that you can open up. Um, It's worth pointing out as we get started that we've just hit a massive transition in the book. That at the end of chapter 11, kind of the first cycle, the first big picture of Genesis comes to an end. Um, And it shifts from a wide-angle lens that looks at... um, History very quickly, the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover at least 2,000 years. Um, It zooms way in, and we focus on the life of Abraham, and then the life of Isaac, and then the life of his son Jacob, um, spanning over 120 years for the rest of the book. So the pace changes. Um, The perspective changes from one that concerns things that are inherently universal, The beginnings of the heavens and the earth, the creation of the world, uh, our shared parents in Adam and Eve and how that impacted our lives, a worldwide flood, the origin of all languages, all these things are big in their pictures and now it zooms in um, and it focuses on a particular man and his particular family. Now in one sense, there's continuity with that discontinuity because Genesis really is, as I said last week, a genealogy with a commentary. It's following a line. It's tracing through intentionally, and so it tells stories to move the genealogy forward, and from here on out, it becomes pretty common for that genealogy to throw a big hypothetical air break, something problematic that gets in the way of moving forward, and then we watch as God resolves it. Um, But tonight, we pick up with Abraham, who, because in some senses, he's the first becomes essential for understanding the rest of the scriptures. When Paul's trying to explain the fullness of the gospel in the book of Romans, he knows better than to not connect the dots right here in this passage where it all begins. He feels the need to show that what he's talking about in Jesus Christ begins here, here in these pages of Genesis. Um, In the same way, the author of Hebrews spends extensive time unpacking the stories that we'll encounter tonight. Jesus himself reached back into these stories and told the confounded audience that he was speaking to that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And so Jesus roots his story here in the story of Abraham. And it begins in chapter 12 here in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now what verse 1 there says in its literal Hebrew, is the Lord had said this to Abram. And if you go back and you look at the last few verses of 11, you can see that he said that while Abram was not in Ur of the Chaldees, but all the way back in Mesopotamia. That he had traveled with his father in tow, and then his father in his old age, they settled down into Ur. Ur. He waited for his father to die. And so chapter 12, verse 1, picks up in the midst of that travel. Notice also how abrupt this is. Even though there's a past tense the Lord had said, nonetheless, all of a sudden, God speaks to a single man, a man named Abram. We know him as Abraham, but God speaks to a single man and calls him. He gives him a task to do. And as we've already seen with Noah, it's important for us to recognize here that this is not... um, 
a well-groomed, faithful follower of God who's selected for a special mission. Abram is from an area where idolatry is prevalent. When we look at the meanings of the names of his family members, both his father and his sisters, they're the names of pagan gods of the moon cult that we've dug up and excavated in this area. Okay? In fact, Joshua tells us in chapter 24, verse 2, that Abraham, him, or Abraham himself, as well as his whole family, were idol worshippers. And so this is the God of the Bible, the God who's the creator, calling a man out of a context of falsehood and confusion. And you watch effectively then um, as he develops into an understanding of who God is. Okay? So like I said, it's important for us not to see him as being, um, being a professional believer. At this point, he knows nothing of who God is. And yet, once again, that demonstrates God's sovereign grace. Abraham is given a tremendous blessing here, as we'll read in just a second, but it's not founded on who Abraham is, but on what God's plan is. It's just freely offered uh, to someone to, to all appearances, seems random. In fact, we learn at the very end of chapter 11, um, notice verse 30 there, now Sarai was barren, she had no child. So here uh, God selects Abram, knowing that his aged wife, he's 75, she's 10 years younger, uh, is barren and has never had any kids. With that in mind, he calls him, and what does he say? Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. Second thing I want you to see there tonight is that he calls him not with a clear picture of where he's going. He just says, start walking and I'll tell you when you've arrived. Okay. And so, outside of the fact that God graciously selects an average Joe sinner to bless in such an abundant way, that doesn't downplay the faith that this first step involves. We live in a relatively transient time where people move for work, where people move for climate, where people move for all sorts of reasons. The ancient world was really not this way. In fact, if you remember in chapter 11, we just saw a group of people literally rebelliously against God say, let's stake a claim and stay right here. Let's build a city and a tower and hold on and make a name for ourselves. Um, the reason is because everything you know is where you are. Right? There, there is no, um, no city of Rome to dream of, no lights of Paris to wonder about, no job opportunities in you know, bustling cities. Um, the people of Haran, the people of, um, of Ur of the Chaldees, the people of this time are generally nomadic. They're small villages, they're agrarian in nature. And so moving to a place you've never seen before is somewhat unheard of. Not only that, there is a slight migration going on in this time that you can learn about back in chapter 10, but it's in the opposite direction. And so when Abram is called to the south into the land that we know as Canaan or as Israel, he's going the opposite direction of all of his family and extended family, etc. But God just speaks to him and he says, come to a land which I will show you. And he tells him in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
And so he makes tremendous promises to Abram. And the first one we want to notice there is that he says, I will make you a great nation. But remember, he's saying this to an elderly man with a barren wife. Later, this is going to be unpacked into descendants as many as a multitude of stars. But here, the calling is once again one of tremendous faith. The promise that God gives here is in some sense too good to be true. The other primary note we find in this is the word blessed. It occurs over and over. And so God says that he will bless Abram, that he will bless his descendants, that he will make Abram his, uh, a blessing, that he will bless those who bless Abram, that he'll even uh, curse those who dishonor him. And then finally, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, it's in that last line that we finally get um, the curtain pulled back and we understand what it is that God's up to with Abram. You see... God made a promise to Adam and Eve all the way back in the beginning that he was going to set things right. And what Genesis uh, 2, sorry, Genesis 3 all the way up to 11 shows uh, is effectively the essential need for God to do something. And so we watch and we find that what happened with Adam and Eve happens with Cain and Abel. And we watch as that degrades into the earth being filled with violence and the need for a flood. And even in Adam Mark 2, in the person of Noah, who begins in a fresh world, with a fresh calling, in a fresh garden, we find him in the same condition, with the same problem of sin. But here's the first place where God actually takes a step in fulfilling the promise that he made to Adam and Eve. And he does it by extending this promise to Abram and his descendants. But I want you to notice here as it finishes in verse 3, it says, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, God is going to work particularly with Abram and his descendants for a universal reason. He chooses the nation of Israel. He elects them sovereignly and graciously for the sake of the whole world. And that's told up front. That's the plan right here. And this verse sets the agenda that rolls all the way up to the New Testament. Okay? The entire history of Israel is contained in this promise right here leading up to the Messiah. Um, And so there's these tremendous promises and Abram is called and then look at verse 4. Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Now Lot is Abram's nephew. He is his sister's son. In fact, if you've been following the genealogy through Genesis, when we get to Terah, Terah has one son and two daughters. Abram is the one son, and Lot is from one of the daughters. And so, in a sense, because we've constantly been following the same lineage through genealogy, Lot is the expected candidate of this fulfillment. And part of what we find in this story is as those things start to filter out and become clear. But effectively, it's Abram, Sarai, his wife, Lot, as well as a large constituency of people who are Abram's servants. We'll find out tonight that there's at least 318 of them, okay? So this is a large group of shepherds on the move with a large amount of flocks that they're maintaining and sustaining. Um, Verse 5, Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, And the people that they had acquired in Haran, there's the servants, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. 
Do you understand why that statement is important? It's because Abraham has been traveling to a land which God would show him. And so effectively here is his arrival. He shows up and God says, this is it. This is the land that I've promised you. And then it adds a little bit ominously, the Canaanites were in the land. Okay? One of the things we've seen over and over again in the book of Genesis is that it presents a promise and then it shows a problem and then we see how that problem is resolved. The fact that the land that God has for Abram is an occupied land is a problem. Okay? It's something that's going to have to be better understood. It's something that's going to have to be resolved. But here God speaks to him again uh, and he says, to your offspring I will give this land. So, verse 7, he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, here's something that's very much worth saying. Not only do we tend to think of Abraham um, as an upper echelon believer, somebody to emulate, and we'll see that that story doesn't always hold up, Um, that the failures of Abraham are bad examples just as much as the successes may be good examples. Um, But another thing we see here I think is really important. It's very easy to sit down and read through the Old Testament and feel like God was active and visible all the time. Like it was just as likely to see your friend at Starbucks as it was to run into God. Okay, Um, It's worth recognizing here that over the course of Abram's life, the Lord only appears to him a handful of times. The promise he's just given him, it will take 25 years till Abram actually has a son. Okay? And so even when you look at the story itself, it's relatively rare for these things to happen. And so you've got to watch out for comparing yourself to the lives of the Bible and just thinking, you know, is this evidence that it's mytho- mythological? Or is, it, uh, is there something wrong with me that God isn't, you know, appearing to me on the regular? When you really look at what's going on here, it's relatively rare. And most of Abraham's story, including the struggles and the wrestling with faith, some of them are visible, but there's a lot of days unaccounted for in this story. Once again, the Bible is not a story about men, and this is not really a story about Abram. Abram is caught up in a much larger drama, and so it's the drama, it's the story that's being told as it weaves in and out of his life. But don't lose sense of the pace here. It's important. And so we see here that the way that Abram responds is he sets up an altar. He worships. He sets up a tent. He sets up an altar. And he here began to call upon the name of the Lord. We see next in verse 8, there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. And so here this kind of sets up the standard for the rest of Abram's life. He lives in this land that God has promised him. And the only thing he builds in the land is altars and then eventually a tomb. Other than that, he lives in tents and he travels throughout the land with his household, with these servants, with all of his animals. Now, when it says in verse 9 that he journeyed on, still going towards the Negev, that's him continuing to travel south through the land of Israel and reaching its southernmost border. Okay? And so, basically, what we see in these first few verses is that he's walked the length of what becomes the land of Israel. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, 
So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And so what are we told here? It sounds like relatively simple facts. Things got hard in the land that Abraham was living in, and so he heads to the one place where a famine is not going to be as impacting, Egypt. And the reason for that is very simple. Uh, The land of Israel today is heavily reliant upon rainfall. The land of Egypt is not. Why? Because of the Nile, right? Because it's got the Nile and the wadis that flow out of the Nile, and so their entire culture is protected from droughts because they have the river to maintain them, to sustain them. But there's more going on here than meets the eye. Not only are things about to go sideways, but this trip in general, I want you to notice the things that are lacking from it. First off, this is the first time Abram leaves the land. Uh, It's the first time he migrates where he doesn't have a command of God. It's not God who tells him to go to Egypt. He just sees the famine and he goes. Now there's a tension there. And an understandable one. This is the place that God has called me to dwell. There's nothing to eat here. Everything's at risk. But nonetheless, it's worth recognizing here that what he does here is by definition independent. Independent of the Lord. It doesn't say that he prayed about it. It doesn't say that God told him to go. He just goes. I want you to remember again here that Abram is still figuring out who this God is. He's taken the big risk. He's believed God and followed him to a land and God has appeared to him again and said, this is the land, but he doesn't know much about the nature or the character of God yet. That plays out even more so in the next verses. Verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So what is he foreseeing here? He's foreseeing that his wife is so beautiful that if he walks into Egypt and the Egyptians know that she's Abram's wife, they'll recognize that's a problem in her being their wife. So they'll just get Abram out of the picture. He's afraid that his wife is so beautiful it puts his life at risk. Now, There's a couple of things that are intriguing here. The first is, remember, his wife is 65 years old, and it's it's probably a striking beauty that we're talking about, if this is a concern. And I'll tell you right now, he's correct. It's no less than Pharaoh himself that sees the beauty of Sarai and invites him into uh, his harem. Um, But the second thing I want you to notice here is that this is putting a much larger thing at risk than, um, than Abram seems to realize. God's promise to make him a great nation, to bring him descendants is the implication here, and he's putting the whole formula here at risk. Okay? What I want you to recognize is the problem that Abram creates here is not just a family problem. This is not just family drama. This is God's divine plan being put in a compromising position. Okay? So, what's really going on here? Clearly, and terribly, Abram is more concerned for his own skin than he is his wife, right? He is willing to put her on the line. What he's going to advise her to do is say, you're my sister. How does that change the formula? It just means that she can be taken and Abram spared, okay? That's that's all that's going on here, but he is in self-preservation mode. 
And it's interesting that we don't hear of Sarai's perspective at all in this story, but she is a major linchpin to what happens. I'll show you what I mean as we go along. Um, But this is Abram first feeling the need to protect his family and moving to Egypt and now feeling the need to protect himself and putting his family on the line. Okay. So look at what happens. Verse 13, say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. This is what you would call a worst-case scenario, okay? Right? You probably could have saved face and had a private discussion with somebody who was your usual Egyptian citizen, but this is the law of the land, right? This is Ra incarnate. This is Pharaoh we're talking about. And so she's brought into Pharaoh's harem. Now, here's what doesn't happen. Abram doesn't come to his senses and stage a raid, he, he doesn't grow up and man up and walk in and go, hey, I've made a terrible mistake. Here's what's going on. In fact, he does nothing. Okay? If it weren't for the fact of what happens next, that's the end of the story. That's the end of his marriage. That's the end of God's promises. But notice what does happen here. Verse 16. For her sake... He dealt, dwelt, dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. In other words, he gave gifts to Abram. Okay? This may be something like a dowry, because that's what you would do for your sister's family. Uh, sorry, that's what they would do uh, if they were marrying your sister for the family of the woman. Um, it may be that he's just, just being generally nice. Um, but nonetheless, all of this wealth comes from this happening, verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Okay, now here's the first place where we see, um, sorry, we've already seen one. Why does Pharaoh call Sarai into his harem? Because Sarai is so beautiful. Okay, what do we see here? Because of Sarai, he blesses Abraham. And then in this sentence, verse 17 because of Sarai, Abram's wife, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh. Okay? So she is a quiet character in this story, but she is the driving center of it. Pharaoh responds to Sarai. God responds to Sarai. Okay? It's, it's important to recognize that. The New Testament ends up praising Sarah for her character. Uh, I should say this up front. Her name, like Abram's, is going to be changed. So Sarai or Sarah, you're going to hear me say them both. Um, but God ends up, or the New Testament ends up praising Sarah's character, but it's very subtle in the stories of Genesis itself. But the more important thing here is that despite the fact that Abram's put everything at risk, despite the fact that he's acted self-interestedly, God here doesn't do one of two things. One, he doesn't write Abram off and go, just going to look for a better dude. This was a, you know, scratch that idea. Let's go back to the drawing board. You know, he, he doesn't go, well, at least there's a lot. And the second thing he doesn't do is he doesn't let this happen. And so it mentions here that the household of Pharaoh was afflicted with plagues. When it says household here, it means the entirety of his royal palace, okay? So that includes the princes that were mentioned already. It probably includes the harem. Probably the only person who isn't manifesting these plagues is who? 
Sarai, okay? So he's starting to get a clear idea of what's going on here, even though he doesn't understand it. But it's God's divine intervention here that keeps things on track. Now, notice as it continues, verse 18, Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Now, this is a little bit embarrassing. It's not just embarrassing for Abram, but it's a little bit embarrassing for the three major religions that point to Abram as a founder. Because here's Pharaoh, the pagan king, rebuking him for his unethical behavior. And unfortunately, this isn't the last time. The same thing's going to roll out to the east of Israel with Abimelech when we get to chapter 20. But there's also something else here that's going on that we've seen before. It is amazing how much the imagery here in the vocabulary draws our attention all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. There's similarities here, a husband and his wife, a terrible deception, consequences that are dire, and an interrogation. But here, the, the horror is that the interrogation is done by a pagan king, by Pharaoh. When it, when it comes to Abimelech, God actually gives in a dream to Abimelech what's happening and says, hey, Sarai is another man's wife. And then he says, you should call him to have him pray for you because he is my prophet, which is outlandish, is it not? That God owns up and says, yeah, this is my guy. He's, he's mine. In fact, he's, he could minister to you if you would let him. It seems insane. But I want you to notice before we really talk about it, what happens next is the story. So he says, take your wife and go. Get out of here before worse things happen. Verse 20, and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, when it says all that he had here, what is it referring to? It's referring to all of the wealth that he was given originally. Okay? So, simply put here, Abram makes out like a bandit. Trying to protect his own skin, he walks out of this, not only avoiding the consequences, but a lot richer. Okay? Now, there's a barb, there's a thorn on that rose because part of what he gets in this is a young woman named Hagar. Okay? She's an Egyptian maidservant. She comes from this story right here. But we still have to go, what in the world is going on here? And what you need to recognize is that the promise that God has given in the beginning of Genesis chapter 12 was unconditional. He doesn't say, I will bless you if you obey me. He doesn't say, I will bless you if you live up to my standards. Even when he puts everything at risk here, he continues to protect Abram. And what do we see playing out in the plagues? That those who dishonor Abraham will be cursed, even when they do it ignorantly, right? God is protecting and preserving Abraham, despite the fact that he's a dirty, rotten scoundrel, okay? Now, Like I said, it's worth remembering before we get all judgmental that he doesn't know, he doesn't have the rest of the scriptures. He doesn't know that God's going to provide for him and keep him safe. The only name he knows of God at the moment is El, okay? Jehovah shows up throughout Genesis, but it's pretty clear according to the book of Exodus that the author is using that term. Um, when, When God speaks to Moses at the burning bush, he says, did any of your forefathers know me as Jehovah? Right? And the answer is implied no. And so he really just knows that a God 
has called him to this. He's responding to this. But God is so graciously patient with Abram. If you're familiar with the story, his journey to actually trusting God to give him a son is a long and sordid one. I already mentioned Hagar. Eventually, he's going to come up with a way to make this happen, to do what God said he would do on his own. Um, We're also going to see him complain and question. He'll say in chapter 15, right now, all of my inheritance goes to my head servant, Eleazar. Is that what you want? Is this your plan? Right? He's wrestling through these things. He's working through these things, and it's important to keep that in mind. But I want you to understand here that the goal of the author is neither to hold Abraham up as a hero, nor is it simply to just show that God is going to take care of what's going on. It also is a tremendous demonstration of how grace works in our life. And I'll show you what I mean. What I want to do is as we move forward and we move on to the next story, um, as we move into chapter 13, I want you to see the similarities and the differences. Okay, Chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev, back into the land where he's supposed to be, but notice verse 2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, partially because of what just happened. Verse 3, he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. Now that's significant. It's significant because it tells us right here, the narrator tells us that he went back to the place where God had appeared to him. Okay? He recognizes that he's messed up big, and he just tries to go back to the place before it all went wrong, to the last place that God appeared to him, to Bethel and to Ai. We'll see a repeated performance in Jacob. Bethel is named, actually, not here. This is a... um, a reading back into the story of a more familiar name. But Bethel is actually named in Jacob because God reveals himself to Jacob and he says, surely this is the house of God. This is the place where God dwells. That's Bethel. And then Jacob goes on and lives his insane life. And when he comes back to the promised land and wants to get back on track, where does he go? He goes back to Bethel. Okay. But the thing I want you to recognize here is that... Um, that Abraham just wants to get things right, to get things straight. He doesn't really know how to do that, but he goes to the last place where he knew he was supposed to be. And then notice what happens. Uh, Verse 4, to the place where he made an altar at the first, and there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. So here we have another problem, another tension. And it involves some of the same elements. It may be that the famine we read about is now over. If it's not, it makes all the more sense why they're having a hard time staying in close quarters, right? Because they both have many flocks and many people, and so they're having a hard time finding enough grazing land for all of them, okay? But even if that's not the case, he's now much more wealthy than he was, and they're, they're hitting critical mass. They need, to, they need to divide. But notice what happens um, first. 
It says in verse 6, So the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were great, and they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. In other words, part of the problem is that they're not the only ones grazing on this land, right? The land is full of other communities also making use of it, so the strain is exacerbated. Then, verse 8, Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. This is what I want you to notice is so different from what we just read in Egypt. In Egypt, his self-preservation is his total mode, and he's willing to put his family at risk. Here, even though he's the patriarch, right, in a society where he would have been the centerpiece of this community, and that came with a good deal of honor, dignity, respect, as well as responsibility. If anyone gets the first choice of what happens next, if anyone makes a decision in this scenario, it's Abram. But instead, he goes to his young nephew, Law, and he says, look, don't let there be any strife between us. Choose for yourself. You pick the land, and then I'll take what's ever left over. Okay, now you can't tell me that we don't see a massive character transition there. The reason why I point this out tonight is because oftentimes the ways that we learn to trust God is when he demonstrates himself to be trustworthy when we are not. Right? What Abraham is recognizing here is that even at his worst, God's got his back. And so he doesn't have to protect and preserve himself here. One of the things we see throughout the story of Abraham is lessons as Abraham grows to understand who God is and then rests in that reality, and we'll see more of them. But maybe many of you can relate uh, that, that God has proved himself faithful when we are faithless, that God has demonstrated his grace at your worst, and that means that you can trust him at other times. God shows an unremittent um, commitment to Abraham, a loyalty that's unfatigued by his shortcomings and his failures, and now he starts to live in light of that. And so he gives the option. He gives the option to Lot. In verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot looks around and he sees a particular area that's appealing to him. Now this area is right on the border of the land. Okay? And so in a sense, Lot is choosing outside of this promise that God has given, but that's not terribly explicit. And it's not really the point. What's important here is that Lot looks for himself and he chooses for himself. And there's a good deal of wordage here that has... Um, it has a little bit of suspense in it. When it says that he looked at this land, you should hear the dun-dun-dun that comes with suspense because notice what it says. Listen to the comparisons it makes. It says he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Okay. Now, in, in one sense, that's a very positive illustration, but we know how that went. Right. Notice the second one. Like the land of Egypt... It has the River Nile. It's beautiful, but we know how that just went. And then it says, in the direction of Zoar, and then in a parenthetical, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Okay? Here, we see that the future that's coming for this is terrible destruction. Okay? All of this is intentionally laid out by the author so that we don't feel comfortable with Lot's choosing. Okay? It's completely appropriate to recognize the value of what it says here. It says that Lot chose for himself. Okay? He saw with his eyes and he chose for himself, just as Eve had done beforehand, just as the sons of God did with the daughters of men. It's the same verbiage that it's using throughout this passage. And so he makes this choice, and it's going to become the bane of the history of Lot. Just this one choice. It's so minor. Okay? He looks, and he takes for himself. It's not a big deal, but he stays on this track and will watch as it gets worse and worse as it goes along. In fact, um, notice what happens next. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. That's another word that verbally has been kind of a cue of things going sideways in the book of Genesis. Um, so he's going east. Thus they separate from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. In other words, he continued to progress and move to the southernmost aspect of these cities, which is Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. This is just foreshadowing. It's a preview of what's to come. This is going to come back to bite Lot, but the story for now ends there. We just have a preview of what's to come in Act 2, and it's left there. But look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. Do you hear the similarity there? Lot lifted up his eyes and looked, and God says to Abraham, look up. Okay? Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Lot chooses for himself. God gives to Abraham. Okay. Now, this is a thing that I don't want to overpush, but it's, it's a consistent thing in the Bible that there is an ability we have as human beings to choose poorly. Okay? It says in Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to destruction. And what is the author of that proverb trying to get at? The fact that when we pick for ourselves, we often pick the things that are the most destructive. Not because we're sadistic, not because we're interested in things going sideways. We're not always looking for self-destruction, but we're just not good gauges of what's good for us. Whereas what we see in Abraham here is that he, by nature, I mean, just statistically, entrusts the reality to something greater than himself. Whatever Lot chooses, he chooses the, op- uh, the, the opposite. But by nature, he leaves himself open to whatever God has for him, okay, by not making the choice for himself. But once again, I think it's really important that we see the hold of this in the light of what just happened in Egypt. It's a direct reversal of these things. And so here God gives a promise and he says, everything you can see from where you are, to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, it's all yours. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if, no one, or if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Now that's the first time the promise of chapter 12, verse 2 gets pushed forward. And it gets pushed way forward, right? From nations to uncountable offspring as the dust of the earth. 
one of the things about who God is is that um, God's way of speaking to us is always progressive. And so we have this cryptic and minimal promise in Genesis chapter 3 that somehow the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, there's going to be a war, and somehow through that, even though it will be damaging to the seed of the woman, it'll crush the head of the serpent. And as we walk through the scriptures, that becomes clearer and clearer as we go along. That's also true in, in the sense of personal relationships with God, especially in the case of Abraham. Who God is and what God has for him becomes clearer and clearer. And so we'll watch as the promises define, but this is the first time where it mentions offspring. Okay. Now, once again, it's easy to criticize Abraham because he, he, he asks and he doubts and he wonders, and he sleeps with his servant, you know, to create an heir for himself. But I want you to notice as we go along how the story gets more specific. At this point, God has never specifically articulated the fact that it will be Sarah's child as well. He will, but after Ishmael. At this point, uh, though, there is a step forward. It's not just a nation. It's not just descendants. It's offspring. It's a direct line. Your children, Abram. And we'll see that come up again. So we have this beautiful promise here. Um, verse 17, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So what does God tell Abram to do? To enter into what he's given him. To walk the length and the breadth of it. To stay put in it, right? Don't cross the boundary. Don't run away. Stay here, but enjoy it. Walk in it. Experience it. And so we see that's what he does in verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. At this point, you should be sensing a pattern. Okay. The pattern is simply put that God speaks to Abraham. Abraham obeys God, and he builds an altar of worship. Okay. And we'll see it play out over and over again. But before we move forward, this separation is important for one last reason okay it brings the focus in on Abraham okay the tension now of what God's going to do has effectively removed Lot from the possibilities now the genealogy that we've been following has come to a dead stop that hinges on the fact that Sarai is barren that Abram has no kids and it's sitting there in all of its tension okay chapter 14 in the days of Aramphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and yes, that's my favorite biblical name, uh, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Okay, we know it as the Dead Sea. Verse 4, 12 years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. So here's, here's the setting. We don't even know why this matters to us yet, but here's the setting for the story it's about to tell. What we discover is that there are kings of the east, and then there are the kings of the five cities, which include Sodom and Gomorrah. And the kings of the east, about 12 years back, had put into subjection these Sodom and Gomorrah cities. And what that means is that they are annually paying tribute. Okay? They belong to these other kings, and so they, they are taking a portion, portion of what they grow, a portion of the profits they make, and they're passing it on to this king. 
And here, they come up with a conspiracy. They come up with a way to overthrow this, and so they rebel in the 13th year, okay? Most likely, this just means that they just said, we're not going to do it anymore. We've had enough. Here, we find that there's a unity of five kings, so it's five versus four. The implication here is that they actually think the odds are against them being um, experiencing retribution. They just go, look, we're big and strong now. We're unified. You can't do anything about it. We're not giving you our milk money anymore. Okay, that's the idea. And it's fine for a year. But then it says in the 14th year, Chedileomar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shavakirathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Okay. In other words, they just come into the land from the north on the king's highway and they just start to ransack community after community city after city. As I already mentioned, the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, which is kind of the head of this whole operation, is the furthest south. And so you can imagine over the course of this year, as this wave of soldiers is getting closer and closer, and all of their, all of their armies and all of their unified uh, people you know, are there, and they're being wiped out, and things are getting desperate, and so it continues here. In verse 7, then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazar or Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined the valley in the valley, valley of Siddim with Chedileomar, king of Elam, Tidal, the king of Goam, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Eleazar, four kings against five. So here, the battle starts waging, and it's basically over. Verse 12, uh, 11, excuse me. The enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now we suddenly understand why this is happening. Basically, what happens is in a large time of political upheaval, Abram's nephew Lot gets caught up in things. We also see a progression here that we didn't know. In the last chapter, it said that Lot pitched his tents as far as Sodom, meaning he was living outside of Sodom but near it. But near, here we find out that he's captured along with other people in Sodom because he's living in Sodom. Okay? This progression is going to continue with the story of Lot. Next time, we'll find him sitting in the gates of Sodom, which means that he's an elected official for the city. Okay? And so this progression is here, but because of this choice that once again seemed so, um, so good and so beautiful. Externally, it was, a, it was a good choice, has a severe consequence, and he's just gone from wealthy, respected land, or uh, not landowner, but wealthy, respected, um, you know, shepherd to slave overnight. So it's in this context that the story picks up. Verse 13 then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshel and Aner. These were allies of Abram. So Abram's made some friends in the area that he's living, and an escapee of this big battle comes and tells them the news. And somehow this escapee knows that Abram's nephew, Lot, was part of the spoils. Okay. So, verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 
Okay, first off, this is really surprising, but the only reason it's surprising is because we're talking about a time that is so different than ours, okay? When we read the story and we read about Abram leaving and it says that he had wealth and servants, we're thinking like six, okay? But on top of that, we see that these men are trained. Why are they trained? Because there is no big, great government to protect people, right? And so a Bedouin people, a people on the move, they travel with protection, okay? And so he's got not just shepherds, but if you will, mercenaries, soldiers, people who work for him. And so what he does is he puts together a small force, I mean, compared to five kings being defeated by four kings, we're talking about large armies here, not, not you know, a raiding party. Um, but nonetheless, he takes his 318, he takes his allies in, um, uh, in these two men, Eshel and Aner, uh, and he follows all the way to the city of Dan. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Now, we're not told much about his strategy here, except that he attacked at night and that he split up his, uh, his forces. In other words, it's like a pincer attack. They come in from both sides as the camp is sleeping. It's worth recognizing here what most likely has been going on for this night, which is partying, right? They've just fulfilled the victory over these towns. They've ransacked them. There's nobody left to fight them. They're not expecting any more enemies, okay? And so they are not prepared for this attack in the middle of the night. Nonetheless, it demonstrates tremendous courage on the part of Abraham, okay? And so he wins out. There's total chaos. He chases them. Um, he, he pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, which is a pretty good distance, verse 16. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, the women and the people. Okay, and so once again, we see Abraham in just tremendous wealth. He has all of the spoils of war that he brings back with him, and that sets up another test for Abraham, another temptation. But what happens next is super interesting, but only if you're paying attention. So we'll read it with me. We're going to read a little bit further than we usually would before I comment. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who had delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, pause. If you were to take your fingers and lay them in your Bible so that you cover up verses 18 through 20, you'd never know they were missing. Okay, I want you to notice. Read with me verse, uh, verse 17. It says here, After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Verse 21, And the king of Sodom said to Abram. You see how natural that is? The king came out to him, and then the king said to him. What happens in between with the king of, uh, of Salem, who's known as Melchizedek here, uh, is incredibly abrupt. Okay. And that's, uh, that's intentional. It's intentional because what happens in those three verses shapes what happens next. Okay. If this is not an example of divine intervention, I don't know what is. It's written that way. 
Melchizedek, who we've never heard of, who just happens to meet nearby in Jerusalem, because it says here that they meet in the King's Valley. That puts Salem, which becomes Jerusalem, pretty close by in terms of the length of the promised land. And so the king just comes right over. But we've never met him before. He's unexpected. He has this conversation with Abram, and then everything changes. I'll show you what I mean. Notice what um, the king of Sodom says again in verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. In other words, he says, Keep the spoils, Abram. But notice how Abram responds in verse 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abram rich. Okay. What does he say here? He says, I've sworn not to keep any of it for myself. When did he do this? Just a moment ago. Okay. In fact, here he says he's sworn to who? To God Most High, in the Hebrew El Elyon. That name is used by Melchizedek and doesn't occur in the book of Genesis beforehand. Okay? And so what I'm telling you is that this sudden appearance of uh, Melchizedek is providential and it prepares Abraham to handle the temptation that's to come. And it has pretty good insight. Why does he say he won't take the riches? So that the kingdom of Sodom can't point to Abraham and go, he's wealthy because of me. I made him, right? This is the first time in the text that we see Abram thinking in the context of God's glory, right? Because there's only two options. Either God is the blesser of Abram or the king of Sodom is. And here he's not, he's not feeling the need for the king of Sodom's wealth. He just completely entrusts himself to God to take care of him so that God gets the glory, so that nobody can deny the fact that God is real and has blessed Abram in this way. So, with that being said, let's go back and look at Melchizedek, verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Okay, now, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Zedek is the Hebrew word for righteousness. Later on, we find another king ruling over the same town known as Adonizedek, which is lord of righteousness. So, most likely, this is his title and not his proper name. And then it refers to him as well as the king of Salem. Now, this town later becomes Jerusalem, but Salem just means peace, okay? And so he's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He brings out bread and wine. In other words, here's another contrast that's important to make. Here's the king of Sodom who owes everything to Abraham and his band of, you know, rowdy men. And he comes out and all he does is say, give me, give me my people. Out of nowhere, the king of, king of Salem comes out and he lays a table out. He's hospitable. That's what bread and wine means, right? He sets out a beautiful table. And not just staples, not like, boy, I'm sure you're hungry, have some water. It's bread and wine, okay? Um, And then he blessed him, verse 19, and said, Blessed be Abraham um, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Okay? And so he speaks a blessing to Abraham in the name of God Most High. It says in the end of verse 18 that Melchizedek was not only a king, but he was a priest of God Most High. And so he comes and he blesses Abraham. And how does he identify God Most High as possessor of heaven and earth? And that is super important. And here's, here's the reason. El, which is often used as a name for God, was also used by many of the Canaanites for one of their gods. So it's really easy to look at the Bible and go, okay, what we see is just an evolution religiously, an understanding that grows of first just a local God, El, becoming Jehovah. 
Okay, this is the first place where we see that that theory doesn't stand up. Because the idea that El Elyon, uh, which is not a title ever used of El as, a, as an aside, uh, but that he has created all there is, heaven and earth, that's completely um, un... Well, yeah, it's unprecedented, but it's also unrepresented in any of the Canaanite religions. This idea of an ultimate God who created all things, that's something that's unique to the Jews. But nonetheless, this priest comes out of nowhere and gives Abraham a new title that he recognizes as being the God that he worships. He blesses him, um, and then he blesses God. Blessed, verse 20, be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then finally it says that Abram gave a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. Now, there's a couple of things that matter here that culturally we just don't see. The first is the one who does the blessing is the greater. And this works out uniquely in the book of Genesis another time in a way that's surprising. And that's when Joseph becomes one of the higher-ups in Egypt, and then he brings his family, including his father Jacob, into Egypt to meet the Pharaoh. And what does it say? It says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Okay, that's striking. That puts Jacob in the spot of dignity. Not the ruler of the land, but Jacob is the one giving the blessing. In the same way here, it's Melchizedek who is giving the blessing to Abraham. And then on top of that, here we see that Abraham pays a tithe, a tenth, to Melchizedek. This is also, as a side note, the first mention of a priest in the Bible. This greatly predates the priesthood that the Jews inherit from the tribe of Levi and the sons of Aaron. Um, But this person is is not part of the lineage. He's not stated to be one of Abram's relatives. There were Jews and Martin Luther, both, who believed that Melchizedek was actually Shem. You may remember Shem is the the, uh, oldest child of Noah. And he's the one that Noah said, blessed be the God of Shem. Okay? Contemporary, when you run up the genealogy, Shem is still alive in the days of Abraham. And so some just went, maybe that's what this is, but we're not told. Not only that, but after this point, Melchizedek disappears. He's not mentioned in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The next time he occurs is in a completely strange statement in Psalm 110 where it refers to the coming Messiah and it says that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the psalmist bypasses the Levitical priesthood entirely and points to this priest and says the one who is to come is from this line, from this lineage. Now Psalm 110 is of tremendous importance to us as Christians because it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's the same psalm that says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. It's the one that Jesus quizzed the religious leaders of his day about. Um, It's also got a couple of other references uh, that are also referred to multiple times in the New Testament. It is one of the clearest messianic psalms and one of the first places that the New Testament church came to understand who Jesus was according to the Old Testament. Okay. Finally, the author of Hebrews starts to unpack this for us and points both to the fact that Jesus is our great high priest in the lineage of Melchizedek, but then in chapter 7 it gives us a commentary on this passage right here and makes a comparison. And what it points out is that Melchizedek here has no genealogy, 
that he has no parentage, that he just comes out of nowhere, that he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace, and that he's a priest, and that the Messiah would be the priest forever according to Melchizedek. And so some have gone, so what are we seeing here? Are we seeing Jesus just invade the history of the Old Testament, making kind of a cameo in his own story? Is that what's going on here? I would say not necessarily. In fact, I would say that the author of Hebrews doesn't say that. He clearly here says that Melchizedek is a type of Jesus who was to come. And when he points out that Melchizedek here doesn't have any parents, that doesn't mean that he was miraculously appeared. It just means that outside of the normal tradition of Hebrew writing, we don't know his dad, which is super strange, right? He just shows up and plays a tremendously important role, one that Abram recognizes in his day um, and then disappears again, okay? A couple of observations, the most broad one first. It's important to recognize the fact that this is not the only iron God had in the fire, Okay. What God did with the Jews is the most important thing. It's God's plan. It was of universal intent. What we have here is a record of what God was doing, but it's not the record of everything God did. And we find constantly in the, book of, uh, in the books of the Old Testament, outsiders and foreigners suddenly popping into the pages of Scripture. Some of them having a, a foreordained understanding of who God is. It's just worth noting but more importantly here, what we're seeing, um, what we're seeing is, uh, what we're seeing becomes a litmus test for the Messiah. Okay? It resolves one of the great issues that's hard to understand until you get to the New Testament, which is simply, how in the world is the, uh, is the um, coming Messiah going to be a priest when we also know that he's tri- from the tribe of Judah. And the psalmist points forward and says, it has something to do with this. Okay? Now there's mystery here, and we'll talk more about it when we get to Hebrews 7 in six years. Um, but, but for now, the last thing I want to point out to you here is this idea of divine intervention. That God sends Melchizedek and prepares Abram for what is about to happen. I can't say for sure how this would have gone if these verses didn't exist, if this history didn't happen. But I can say confidently that the reason he responds to the king of Sodom in the way he did is because he just learned about who God is. Okay, he just discovered, and so he responds in the moment. Simply put, this is one of the things that God does. Okay, we believe that God is sovereign which means there are appointments on your calendar that you don't know about, but God does. And so oftentimes, he is preparing for what's coming, even though you're not knowing what's coming. And that's not an excuse just to go and run your life with your eyes closed. Most of God's preparation is right here, okay? It's here, it's present, there's warnings, there's... There's, uh, you know, knowledge, there's preparation right here in its pages, but there are occasions where God is preparing you for what's coming if you're just aware of what he's saying to you, if you're just aware of what he's doing in your life. And so Abram um, performs admirably here, and we see the development of Abraham, right? This is the same one who just a few years earlier runs from a famine into Egypt, puts his whole family on the line, and here he's not even tempted by wealth beyond even he has, 
right? And he just says, I'm not going to take any of it. And then he finishes up in verse 23. He says, I'll not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshcol and Mamre take their share. In other words, he says, I'm not speaking for anyone but me, but I'm not taking my portion. On top of that, he pays a tithe to Melchizedek. He takes a tenth of what's rightfully his, and he gives it to God. Now, chapter 15. I wanted to get to chapter 15 tonight because from chapter 12 to chapter 15 is one story. Okay? It starts with kind of a broad invitation for Abram to step out and trust a God he does not yet know. But here is where things get really serious. Hands down, Genesis 15 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Okay. What happens here uh, is, is the beginning. I mean, when we get to 17, we'll, be, we'll get to the covenant with circumcision and the beginning of Israel proper. But here, we get to something that's more important. This is the passage that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4 when he basically wants to say, God's always been the same way. This salvation that he offers freely by grace through faith, it was that way with Abraham, and he points to this passage. But notice what happens, chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Literally what it says here is, I'm your shield and your exceedingly great reward. It's possible here that he's going to say, hey, don't worry, I will do what I've promised. But it's also more likely, in my opinion, that what he says is, I am your reward. I am your possession. And what does he say here? He says three things. Fear not, I am your shield, I am your reward. Do you understand why that would be relevant to him right now? Can you imagine that Abram, after pulling off this huge route, adrenaline full, you know, seeing all of this victory, might be fearing for his life? Okay. The fact that he pulled this off is not because he had um, you know, more strength than these kings. He caught them by surprise. God was present and with him. But now he's sitting there, he's settled back in the land. He's probably thinking, you know what? Lot, they knew I was Lot. They came and told me, right? There's a lot of pieces to this puzzle. He definitely doesn't trust the king of Sodom. And now you've got a guy who... Uh, who lost everything, who just gained it back, you know, is looking for it. There's so many things going on here that he's afraid makes perfect sense. And what does God say? I'm your protection. I'm your shield. And then secondly, he says, I'm your exceedingly great reward. Does that seem relevant? Don't you think that he's maybe having giver's remorse? That now, you know, after the after this fellowship with Melchizedek is over, after swearing, he sits down and he counts the cost of what he's just done. He looks at all of these things. And then there's another fact that you have to keep in mind. We're years into the story now. I don't know how many, but I think that's a reasonable reading of what's going on considering ancient world travel. We're years into the story and it hasn't moved forward at all. Abraham's changed. God's promise has been developed more and more but the fulfillment of it is no closer. The land is still full of other tribes. Abraham's wife is still barren. And so here, God speaks to him. He reveals himself afresh, and he does it contextualized to who Abraham needs to know he is. So another thing you need to understand about the revelation of Scripture uh, is that God reveals who he is in the context 
of what people are looking for. And I don't mean that God is amalgamous and takes shape for whatever we're looking for. What I mean is how we know God is based on the fact that he meets the needs of those characters in the Old Testament. And so his revelation is built around, in fact, what does he tell Moses in the book of Exodus? He says, if you want to understand who I am, I am that I am, right? God almost takes for his name a blank check. He says, I am. There's nothing else to say. I didn't come from anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. All of your needs are built into who I am. I am. And so here he reveals himself. And notice that uh, Abram speaks very honestly with God. Verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. What is he saying here? He's saying, you say you're going to reward me. But what does it matter if you reward me? Right now, everything I own goes to somebody I employ. That's what he says here. And so here, verse 3, Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. This is the first time we're told it's a son, and he's your son, Abraham. Okay, the promise is getting more specific. Verse 5, he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Now I find this verse particularly funny living in Seattle because it wouldn't be that exciting of a promise on any given day in Seattle. Between the light pollution and all of the bad weather, how many stars are you really going to see? A handful? But remember, this is, this is pre, pre-electricity pre-light pollution, ancient world, middle of the equator, you know, the entirety of the sky that we're talking about here. And he just says, this is how big the promise is. This is what I'm going to do for you. And so he takes them outside, he shows them, and he says, this is what it's going to be like, verse 6, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham believes the promise of God, and then it says, God accounted that belief as righteousness. Okay. This is the phrase that Paul picks up on, and what he shows here is that, once again, salvation is always by faith. Abraham stands as righteous here, not because he's been obedient, not because he's been faithful, not because he's an upright citizen or an outstanding uh, believer, uh, but simply because he trusts in the promise that God has given And the word here, counted as righteousness, is as mathematical as it sounds. It's an accounting term. It's sometimes translated to reckon, okay? The idea here is that God looks at Abram's faith, and then he sees it as righteousness. He writes it in the register as righteous, okay? Paul points out in the book of Romans that this predates circumcision. Clearly, by hundreds of years, it predates the giving of the law. And so the promise and faith in the promise, that's where this starts. The law is added for those who believe. Okay, the circumcision is a sign of what's already going on in the inside. But here we're told, as we saw with Noah, that the earmark, the earmark of their lives was faith, that they believed the promises of God. Now James picks up on the same thing and he points out a a, a helpful balance. That the reason circumcision follows and the reason uh, Abraham will eventually take this son out to Mount Moriah and at the command of God seek to take his life, that all of that stems from this faith 
And that it's very easy to say, well, I believe and that's enough, so God sees me as righteous. But if that faith isn't leading to obedience, it's not faith at all. Okay? But the important thing from a Christian perspective is to understand that faith here is the root of the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of obedience. Okay? And so Paul can look at it and say, no, faith preexisted any way of proving that he was worthy of being saved. And at the same time, James can say, yes, but that faith did produce, and that's how we know it was faith. Okay? Do you understand the, the balance that's being presented there? Now, as important as these things are, I want to move on because now we're getting into one of the most exciting things to me in the book of Genesis. Verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them in half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds of half. What in the world is happening here? Okay. Notice again that Abram asks for evidence. He says, how will I know that my descendants will inherit the land? And what happens is God asks him to bring out these animals. And I want you to notice here, Abram already knows what to do. God doesn't say, bring out the animals and cut them in half. He just says, go get these animals, and Abram cuts them in half. Okay. You see, what's happening here looks to us like it's some secret religious ritual. But that's because we don't do anything like this. But the historical accounts we have from the time of Abraham say that a practice like this would be just as common with your contractor as with the God of the universe. You see, what we're seeing here is God's condescension. condescension. And I know we use the word condescending and that's negative, but the traditional theological term means that God stoops down to make himself clear. Okay. No greater uh, picture of condescension in the Bible than Jesus himself as God becomes a man and makes it so we can see, so we can handle, so we can touch, so we can understand who God is. But here's the same thing. God says, okay, you want to know? Let's make a contract. Let's make a covenant. Let's do the same thing that you would do with someone else for them to display your loyalty. He takes a man-made practice, granted a totally weird one, and uses it because he knows what it means to Abram. Okay? Now, still we go, but what's going on here? There is a reference in the book of Jeremiah that helps us to understand. This is in Jeremiah chapter 34. Don't worry about turning there. But God is speaking through Jeremiah, and he refers to the concept of a covenant, this promise that's made, and he does it in the same language of this passage here. So listen up. This is what he says. This is chapter 34, verse 18. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. Okay. What is God saying here through Jeremiah? He's saying the ones who made a deal with me, who made a covenant, they're going to end up just like the animal that was cut in half. Okay. When we look at this and when we look at the historical documents we have of similar things, here's what the practice would look like if you were doing it with another person. Like, say your neighbor and there was some tension there so you made a vow not to attack one another in the middle of the night. You'd cut the animals in half except for the birds because they're too small so they're just killed and laid side by side, a pair of them. And then you would both walk through 
the dead animals together. So you create this road and you both walk through it. And the idea, as we saw in Jeremiah, is if I don't keep my side of the deal, let this happen to me. Okay. It's visceral. It's extreme. But it's also a vow. And vows always have this. Why, why did medieval knights you know, promise to chain two mountains together or have a vigil for three days at the top of a snowy peak? Right? They're looking for ways to express their loyalty, and that's what this was. And so what happens here is God uses this man-made form, but I want you to notice two things. One, he uses the form just as it's planned, and then he does it completely differently because he has more he wants to say. Notice uh, here, Abraham does his part. He lays out the animals, and what does it say? Verse 11, when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. In other words, now Abram waits. He waits long enough that these carcasses rotting in the sun starts to draw birds. And Abram doesn't know what else to do, so he just shoes them away and waits. He waits all day long. In fact, we know because he was just looking at the stars in the sky, okay, that, that this is an entire day that he waits and nothing happens. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you should go to your father in peace, you should be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now there's quite a few things I want to talk about there, but notice verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Where's Abram? Sleeping. Okay, so it's just this appearance of God in a smoking torch and a flaming furnace that passes through by itself. Okay, that breaks the tradition. As I already told you, it was both of them that walked through it, and what they were saying is, if either of us doesn't keep our side, let us be like these animals. And Abraham here is put in a deep sleep, and God walks through himself. He bears the full weight and consequence of this, okay? He says, this is on me. This is up to me. This is an unconditional covenant, okay? He's trying to express to Abraham something greater than human loyalty, and I'll scratch your back, you'll scratch mine, okay? Now, what does he say? He says a couple of things. He says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So the first thing he says is, your descendants aren't going to stay here. You're going to end up in a land far away and you'll start as foreigners, strangers, sojourners, and you'll end up as slaves. Okay? And he says, that condition is going to continue for 400 years. This is where we pick things up in the book of Exodus. But I want you to notice right here that that's not just a happening. Okay? Here, a hundred uh, years before Jacob takes his family into Egypt, God says, this is the plan. Okay. There's an intention in the people going to Egypt. There's a plan that's going in, and it's not just temporary to preserve them from a famine like the story of Joseph seems to be about. There's a bigger intention there, and it becomes the context for the Exodus becomes the context for God's redemption. And so he says, they will be there. And he says, but what? Um, but I, verse 14, will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, the plagues, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Now there is a parallel there. 
It doesn't mention Egypt here, but does that story sound familiar? Right? Abraham, sir, or Abraham's descendants, like Abraham, are going to go into Egypt. There's going to be judgment and plagues, and they're going to come out with great possessions. Okay? Um, verse 15, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you should be buried in a good old age. In other words, this isn't for your lifetime. This isn't happening now. This is a long way down the pike. Verse 16, they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So what's the delay? What's the hurry? Why go down to Egypt at all? One of the reasons that's given here is because the ones who live in the land, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, that their iniquity is not yet complete. In other words, the judgment that's going to come with the genocide of Joshua, God's not going to bring it about now. I mentioned a few weeks ago that what you find when you look at the story of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, when it comes to the earlier residents of the land that we know as Canaanites, is a story of tremendous patience. Okay? God is unwilling to bring about judgment with the hope that they would repent. And so he doesn't just wait a week or two weeks. He waits hundreds of years. And even after these hundreds of years, when Israel comes out of the land and they balk, Instead of going into the land and they wander for 40 years, it tells us in the book of Numbers that that's not merely because of their unbelief, but also because it's not yet the ripe time for judgment. 40 more years is a period of grace. Seeing Israel on the promised land, and just as a side note, you've got Rahab living in the land, right? Believing in the God of Israel, proclaiming it to others. There are other elements going on, but what you see is God being tremendously patient before he brings about judgment on these folks. Now, one last thing. It's not just here that God makes an unconditional covenant, that he cuts a covenant, which what, what, it, what it, the word literally means to make a covenant, to cut one, because it involves cutting these animals. He not only walks through it himself and says, I'm going to do all of this, right? That's, that's a promise of faithfulness. But it's worth pointing out here that even when it comes to the conditional covenants with Israel, they don't keep their side of the bargain. When the law is given, Israel is unfaithful. And eventually, according to the prophets, it's almost as if God serves them with divorce papers because they've been so unfaithful. But what's so striking about the gospel in the New Testament is that God bears both sides. He's the one who's completely faithful in the promise, and he's the one who bears the consequence of our unfaithfulness. Here, as God, in these two symbols of the Exodus, right, a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke, this furnace and this torch, as they move through and he goes through himself, he not only bears the, uh, the, um, the guarantee that God will accomplish his plan, that there will be descendants, that the Messiah will come. But eventually he also, buries, he also bears the penalty. God says, may, me, may I be rend in pieces if this isn't kept, and then he keeps it and he's rend in pieces anyways. Okay. It is not that here we have something prophetic going on, but what we do have is something consistent. Okay. The God of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is consistent. He's the same gracious God. He's the same patient God who, as it says in the New Testament, is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, and so he's long-suffering. 
He's the same God who makes a promise that he will be faithful in, and even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, as it says in the pastoral epistles, epistles, and he's the same God who takes our iniquities upon his shoulders and our unfaithfulness to the covenant and bears it himself. Let's pray. God, it's so easy for us to get distracted by the characters of Scripture, weighing them as heroes and examples, um, being obsessed with having a faith like Abraham. But when we read the story, he had struggles that seemed really familiar. He had shortcomings and failures just like ours. But the story that's really being told here is of the unchanging God who makes tremendously gracious promises, who comes alongside us in our, in our darkness and in our difficulties, Uh, in our sin and our rebellion even, and walks through his promises. Who makes tremendous promises to us and says, I will bear the entire cost of this. I will freely give. No wonder the prophet Isaiah says, come and buy food with no money. You make such a free offer of grace for us, not just in Jesus Christ once and for all for salvation for heaven, but daily as you invite us into relationship with you, as you call us like Jesus did to take upon us your yoke because it's easy and your burden is light, because you're right alongside us, yoked next to us and bearing the full weight of what you call us to. I pray that you would teach us about El Elyon, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth that you would teach us about the torch and the, and the smoke, your presence that's always with us, that you would teach us about the God who keeps his promises, even when we don't keep ours, and bears the cost of our unfaithfulness, because that's how much you love us. Thank you for tonight and for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.